Thanks, Neil. Well, it's a real privilege to be here with you all for this day. Um, my main uh, calling in life is to be an evangelist. Um, so I sort of travel around and speak often in evangelistic contexts. In fact, last time I was in Leeds, it was for the university mission two years ago, and we saw God do some amazing things. But I think that worship and evangelism go very closely hand in hand. In fact, uh, we're going to see in, in um, John's gospel how intimately connected these two things are as we go on today. And it's always a, a, a wonderful delight to worship with other worship leaders. You can tell, can't you? You can, you can sense in the room a, a room filled with people just passionate for Jesus and who he is. So this morning, I just want us to, to spend some time in this session exploring um, Christ, really, and that relationship that we're invited into, both as worshippers of this magnificent Jesus that we encounter in the pages of Scripture, worshippers ourselves, but then as others who are called to bring people into that worshipping relationship. My colleague, a guy called Tom Price, says... Um, talking about um, how he became a Christian in his 20s, he says, you've got to admit that one person in several billion stands out, Jesus, he's talking about. The atheist writer H.G. Wells said this, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very centre of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all human history. So as we explore Jesus and we think about the one we're worshipping, we remember that although he lived in relative obscurity in first century Palestine, the secular encyclopedia Britannica has devoted over 21,000 words to Jesus Christ. His is the largest of the biographies in that encyclopedia. And that's over 2,000 years after his death. Jesus has more data in Wikipedia than any other person. Even though in world terms he was poor and owned no property... Millions of churches across the world have been built and thousands of charities, foundations and hospitals, all in his name. Even though he had no formal education, thousands of colleges and universities have been founded in his name. Even though we don't know the exact date of his birth, the world's calendar is based around it. And we date human history around this individual. We think of things that happened before Christ and AD, Anno Domino, the year of our Lord, after that birth. Even though he never wrote a book, more works of art, literature, music, plays, films, and other things have been influenced by Jesus than by any other figure. And although he had no formal education, Scholars have often found that the teaching of Jesus are, are, are wise and astute and at least view him as a great teacher. And he's viewed as having more influence just through his teachings than Socrates, Aristotle and Plato put together who spent over 150 years in public life teaching when Jesus spent three. He led no army or institution he could count 12 ordinary men and a small group of women as his followers 
um, at his death. Yet, he's now seen as one of the world's greatest leaders to have ever walked the face of the earth. Napoleon Bonaparte said this, I know men and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of people would die for him. Even though he only left his tiny country, probably around the smaller than Wales, once when he was in Egypt as a child, He's had a massive impact on the world. The historian Philip Schaff describes this. He says, this Jesus of Nazareth without money and arms conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed and Napoleon. Without science, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken about before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. He's impressive, isn't he? But why? The brilliant writer Fyodor Dostoevsky, Russian creator of literature, if you're interested in, in such things, said this. I believe there is no one deeper, lovelier, more sympathetic and more perfect than Jesus. Not only is there no one else like him, there never could be anyone like him. How did one person come from obscurity to such extraordinary impact? I suggest to you today that it's because he's risen, he's real, and he's still with us today. Now, I know that um, in any gathering of Christians, there are going to be some among us, and particularly those who have experience of leadership within the church, who are going to struggle with cynicism and boredom. You know, preachers talk about it, you know, they find their own sermons boring. And I know for some of you involved in, in worship leading, you know, there often is that sense of duty and just trudging through the set. And it's the same old songs, the same old thing every week. But I challenge you to be cynical in the presence of Christ. I challenge you to be bored in the presence of Christ. So this morning, we're going to think about this Jesus. Now, my family discovered this reality um, quite dramatically. My grandfather was a very committed atheist, and um, so committed, in fact, that he forbade there from being a Bible in the house. My father was not allowed to touch a Bible, read a Bible, or talk about God. And it was in his 30s, my dad was an academic, he um, was teaching in a university, And it was in his 30s that he encountered the risen Christ personally. And there were no violins, there was no church music, and there was no crescendo of emotion. 
He was in his study at home, marking some exam papers for his students, doing his job when Jesus Christ broke into that room, the risen Christ. And my father saw him, met him, and found himself on his knees, knowing nothing about Christianity, really, and nothing about the Bible. And as he saw Christ, he knelt down, and the words that came to his mind were, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's how he became a Christian. He later discovered that someone else says that in the Gospels. (laughs) This same Jesus who has shaken history is with us. He's with us and he's a person, a real person who invites us into relationship. He is not a force like we see in Star Wars. He is not predominantly an idea that we think about, reflect about and argue about. He's not a utilitarian power source so that we can get things and do things that we want. He is a person. And knowing a person is a very different thing from propagating or propping up a system. A lot of of us here in this room will find ourselves doing that. Knowing a person is very different from replicating a model or rolling out a program or being a member of a club. Those are the things that make us cynical. Knowing a person is an adventure. It's a privilege. It can be frightening. It can be challenging. I still remember falling in love for the first time. I was a student at Oxford, and my husband and I had had just met, and we we would stay up in the night talking long into the night. It was also during the era of the Toronto Blessings. There was an extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Loads of our friends came under the power of God in amazing, amazing ways. And when we were apart in the holidays, we would exchange pages and pages of letters. The intimacy of that deep conversation set apart what we had from the kind of passing flings of our friends. And many of our non-Christian friends recognized that and saw it and thought it was something weird but wonderful. We've now been married for 17 years and we still talk on the phone lots of times a day and text throughout the day. I've had four texts already this morning um, exchanged with him. I now have children. I've got um, twins who are eight and a little one who's five, all boys. And developing a relationship with them is one of the joys of my life. I'll often go on a date with one of them one at a time and we'll drive off in the car and, you know, we'll be just on our way to a restaurant and they, you know, they've dressed up smart and I've dressed up smart. And, you know, the twin number one will be, you know, quite quiet, quite cool. And, you know, little bits of conversation will come out and he'll begin to ask amazing questions. Things like, mommy, you know, where do thoughts come from? And, um, you know, what, what, what does thought look like, mommy? A really deep philosopher, and the other one will get into the car, and we'll be on our way on our own. And, and uh, within two seconds of closing the door, he's talking like this, can't stop. You know, knowing a person is a wonderful thing. 
That's what Jesus invites us. The one who is more inspirational, more powerful than Charlemagne, Caesar, greater thinker than, than Plato or Socrates. He invites you and I into a lifelong adventure of relationship. Wow, it's awesome. It's amazing. Now, one of the things that happens in relationships is that we need to grow in them. We need to grow to get to know the other person. And one of the most important components in that, I think, and we see it in the Gospels, is that component of being asked and answering questions. Have you ever been at a dinner party and you've been seated next to somebody and it's just really, really, really hard going? You know, you're only on the starter and you've already used up all your small talk. And you're getting nothing back. And you realize, it dawns on you, that the person sitting next to you, and you've got another hour of this hell to go, is not going to ask you any questions about you. You're going to do all the running. In a relationship, we need questions. And what's amazing is that in the Gospels, we encounter Jesus, God in human flesh, walking on this earth, and he asks loads of questions. And as, as I was preparing today, Neil asked me to, to speak. As I was preparing today, um, I sensed the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, who promises where two or three are gathered, I'm there, I'm with you. That that same Jesus wants to ask you and I a few of those questions. Now in John's gospel alone, there are 33 for the preachers among you. <laughs> They make a good sermon, each of them. But the Lord laid on my heart, don't worry, not all 33 of them, just a a few um, for us to consider. And the first one comes in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, if you have your Bibles. Chapter 1 and verse 38. Now, um, those of you who who know a bit about John, it's one of my favourite Gospels, you'll know that it's structured around initially what's called the prologue. That's that bit that's often read out at Christmas. You know, all about the word. It's taking the, um, the Greek idea, that concept of the logos, that's the kind of ultimate reality principle of Greek philosophy, the logos. And John takes that principle, that creative ultimate principle of their philosophy, and he says, your logos, the one through whom the universe came into existence, the one through whom matter and all of, the, all of creation, everything that we see, uh, that principle is a person. That logos is personal. And you know what? That, that personal reality that brought everything into existence, he actually entered history. He came and walked on the face of the earth. He took flesh and dwelled among us. Okay, so that's the prologue. There's this massive build-up. And then John introduces us through the gospel, through the story, to that capital L, Logos, to Jesus. And so we meet him. And uh, I'm going to read it from verse 35. The next day, John was there again, that's John the Baptist, with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked them, and this is the first time he speaks in John's gospel, the Logos through whom the universe came into existence, 
We've had this massive build-up, and now this is the first thing he says, recorded speech by John. And it's a question. It's a question I think he wants to ask each of us this morning. What do you want? What do you want? It's a profound question. The story is told of a genie, of a woman, sorry, who was walking along a beach, kicked a bottle, and the genie popped out. And uh, she said, oh, good, am I going to get three wishes? And the genie said, no, I'm afraid that due to inflation, constant downsizing, low wages in the third world, and fierce global competition, I can only grant you one wish. So what's it going to be? The woman didn't hesitate. She said, I want peace in the Middle East. See this map? I want all these countries to stop fighting each other. The genie looked at the map and said, listen, lady, those countries have been at war for thousands of years. I'm good, but I'm not that good. It can't be done. Make another wish. The woman thought for a minute and said, well, you know, I've never been able to find quite the right partner. One that's considerate and fun, cooks and helps with the cleaning, is attractive and gets on with my mother, doesn't watch sports all the time and is faithful. That's what I wish for, the perfect partner. The genie let out a long sigh and said, okay, give me the map again. (laughs) Well, here, John is not a fictitious genie in a joke saying, what do you want? Jesus. John has introduced him to us as the Logos, the creator of the world, the world, the one from whom information, thought, everything metaphysical like love and language comes, as well as the material universe, the stuff, the things we see and feel and touch. He made it all and he's entered his creation. And he says, what do you want? It's a powerful question. It's an opener to the gospel. It's the ultimate question of the human heart. What is the purpose and meaning of my life? And Jesus ultimately goes on in, in, in this gospel to claim to be the answer to the heart cry of every human being. And as the story unfolds, we're, we're welcomed and, and drawn into this relationship with Christ. But he asks you, what do you want? What do you want? And I believe he wants to ask you this this morning. There are a number of reasons. Perhaps you're here and you love worship, you love your church, but you know, you've been around the block a bit and actually building a church in 21st century Britain today is really hard work. And you've heard a lot of promises from a lot of pulpits and you've you know, you've prayed and asked God for things. But you've grown disappointed. And I identify with this, with this myself, by the way. For many of us, that's a reality. And so in the context of relationship, the person, Jesus, is not afraid of your answer to that question. And he's not afraid of what you may have been through before or the difficulties that you find yourself in now. And he goes for the jugular. He says, what do you want? Three years ago, um, I had the privilege of ministering alongside one of my modern day um, church heroes, a guy called Pastor Jim Zimbler. 
he planted the Brooklyn Tabernacle with his wife Carol and they have an amazing choir. Some of you may have come across their music. They sang at President Obama's um, inauguration. You may have seen them on TV. But their church is just amazing, incredible ministry on the streets of New York. And I think he's a really, really gifted speaker. I love his teaching ministry. And so um, we were together um, in Asia and we were running a training conference for pastors from the underground church in China and trying to give them just a week of, of input because obviously they're massively struggling on the front line and many of them never get any, never receive anything, they're always giving out. So we had 250 pastors there. And between them, they had personal direct apostolic oversight over 60 million Christians. I met one guy who has 10 million people in his church, and he was, it was amazing. But one of the things Pastor Simbola spoke on was um, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, and it really goes to the heart of what we're talking about today. And it's Psalm 119, um, verse 49. So if you want to flick over to that with me. That would be great. He was talking about um, uh, what it is to lead and what it is to lead during hard times. And uh, he brought this prophetic word. And he asked all of us in that room as leaders to think about the defining prayer, the defining passion, and that sense of what God has given us a vision for and a heart for that we haven't yet seen accomplished. What, it is, what is it that you know God has spoken to you about, but it has not yet come to pass? And he said, pray this word with the words of the psalmist. Remember your word to your servant, Lord, for you have given me hope. Remember your word to your servant, Lord, for you have given me hope. So as I ask you this question, and I believe the Lord asks you, what do you want what is the answer to that question for you? What is it that you really are desperate to see in your life, in your lifetime? When Pastor Simbalu was speaking, um, my husband and I had just moved. My husband is a, a Church of England vicar, and we had been in London for seven years, and we'd seen God do amazing things in our church. We'd really grown um, we had some, I don't know, about 700 adults and, you know, 1,000 children and young people, something like that. Really extraordinary numbers of people had come to Christ and often out of really broken contexts. And the Lord had called us very clearly out of that situation into a church planting situation. And although the bishop where we felt called to go was welcoming us, there was no funding. So... Um, We've, we knew that God was calling us to leave behind Frog's vicar package, which admittedly is not a vast amount of money, but it was to us a house, a salary, you know, pension, and a congregation. And we'd moved with our three children, and we were now just living in a rented house in this community where we felt God had called us to come and plant, and we had eight people now, the vision the Lord had given us was a, a, a really clear vision. He'd actually shown us exactly uh, with a map and um, uh, given all sorts of details to us. We knew what he was calling us to do. and We knew that we were called to plant on this particular piece of land. 
And as I sat there, though, six, you know, five months in or something to planting, and we may be up to about 20 people at this point, maybe 25, you know, we've doubled in size. So. <laughs> but you're still looking around on Sunday morning thinking, where are all the people? And this is really hard work. And, you know, I've got to lead worship and do the Sunday school and then, you know, go and do my job as well. I remember crying out to the Lord without hesitation. Remember your word to your servant, Lord. You have given me hope. You gave us that word. You put the hope in our hearts. Remember us. Now, um, three years on, um, we can look back at that moment. I can look back at that moment and see and say that God was faithful. He's given us, provided for us this amazing plot of land which three years earlier Frog had drawn and my husband had drawn a map and said this is where God's calling us to be if you lay it over an ordnance survey map it is the farm that we're on we've been able to buy it we have 70 acres and we're building a church there and lots of missional communities around it and lots of people have come to faith praise him but in the darkness of that moment I remember the challenge of that question. What is the defining dream or prayer of your heart? And I sense that the Lord wants to ask you that this morning. He wants you to tell him the dream that he's put in your heart. Again, without cynicism, without hardness, and allow that hope to rise Second question, and time is really against us. So second question, I think he wants to ask, comes in John chapter 2, verse 4. And the question, again, is a challenging one. The context is, we all know it, so I won't, I won't um, go into a lot of detail, but it's the wedding at Cana. It's famous because um, the wine runs out, you remember, and Jesus turns liters and liters and liters of water into wine. But in the, in the midst of this, there's an interesting conversation between Jesus and his mother. Verse 3, Jesus' mother came to him and said, they have no more wine. Here's the question. Woman, Jesus replied, why do you involve me? Why do you involve me? This is a really profound and brilliant question. Remember, questions draw us deeper into a relationship with a person. And so Jesus asked us this question, do you involve me? The brilliant famous pastor from China, Brother Yun, describes his amazement at his first visit to the Western church and remember, he's lived a life of sort of extraordinary miracles, walking out of prison and all sorts of amazing things. And he said the one thing he couldn't get over when he came to the West and experienced our church here was how proficiently we pursue our programs with absolutely no need for God. Oh, that cut like a dagger to my heart when I read that. So Jesus asked us this question. Why do you involve me? Do you involve me? Are you living a Christian life without Christ? Without Jesus, the person 
Jesus, who's God, with you, made present by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are, it's an exhausting effort of religion and works. A Christian life without him. But here at this wedding, Jesus shows us. He shows extraordinary, amazing things. But he shows us how desperately we need him. He does it in a number of ways. Of course, the miracle. Turning liters and liters and liters of water in these ceremonial cleansing jars. So receptacles designed to contain liquid that could purify you spiritually. The liquid in them is turned red, the color of blood. This is an amazing sign of what Jesus has come to do. His cross, his blood, his work. But the question, will you involve me? Are you trying to do what it is you're doing without him? Or are you prepared to step out a little bit to live for Christ, pursue his kingdom, so that it would be utterly impossible to succeed in your vision without him coming through for you? Is what you're trying to do, is the vision that you're pursuing, the purpose in your Christian life, is it possible to achieve it without the very power of the risen Christ with you? If it is, I suggest that vision is too small. And sometimes we grow weary and tired and and cynical and exhausted and bored because we've lost sight of the adventure of the Christian life that Christ calls us to. I experienced this myself. um, I think probably most um, dramatically uh, as a teenager, My husband and I, we were just dating at that point, but a small group of us um, were students and we felt that God was calling us to go to Afghanistan. Um, Can't tell you the whole story here today. Some of you might know it, but the Taliban had just taken power. They had taken over three quarters of the country. And um, we felt that God was calling us to go there and share Jesus with them. The night before we left, I had a dream which involved giving them Bibles. Um, So we went on the day of our flight and stuffed our bags filled with Bibles and New Testaments, um, as well as just the prayer that we'd been planning to do. We did actually get into the military headquarters of the Taliban. We did meet the education minister, the foreign minister, and the keeper of the Holy Quran, the religion minister. And we interviewed them. We got in with journalist visas from our student newspaper. And um, at the end of this time, hours of conversation, we gave them the Bibles and we sort of waited really to be shot. They were all heavily armed with Kalashnikovs. And, um, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. But they took hold of the Bibles and uh, the keeper of the Holy Quran, so the religion minister for the Taliban, Um, looked at it and my friend Miles who's also a vicar now said um, you know this is a a holy book this is the most precious gift we think we can give you it's the bible and he took the bible looked at it looked at us and said I know exactly what this book is I've prayed to God for years that I could read this book 
I'll read it every day until I finish. Now, three 19, 20-year-old British university students with absolutely no church leadership experience (laughs) and no life experience really either would not be your prime candidates probably for going to evangelize the leaders of a country hostile to Christ. So I learned in that and in multiple situations since involve Jesus live in a way that your dream your vision is unattainable if it were not for him and let's finish with the last question then we're going to have some time for ministry I'm skipping over four others by the way sorry about that the last question comes in John's gospel chapter 21 there are actually two questions in this chapter which I think are relevant one is the question do you have any fish do you have any fruit but we're not going to look at that one the last question we're going to look at is probably one of the most vulnerable questions one person can ask another person and here the magnificent Jesus the one through whom the universe came into existence who entered space time and history in the ancient world in Palestine the one who is God with us asks this extraordinarily vulnerable question he asks it three times to Peter you know what it is the question is do you love me do you love me I wonder if any of us realize the profundity of that question the vulnerability of that question this is where Jesus is so different from any other organized religion or worldview or path you could take because here the one who is seated in majesty at the right hand of the father the one who brought the universe into existence, puts himself in the situation where he invites you and I into a relationship. Do you love me? Peter says, oh Lord, you know that I love you. But he asks again, And again, three times. This is the qualification for service in Jesus' kingdom. There's no theology exam. There's no ordination with flowing robes and, you know, hands laid on heads. The qualification is right here. Do you love me? And he asks us that this morning. Is there an extravagance, a generosity, a passion, a willingness, a consistency in the evidence of your life? Think about it. What does your life say in answer to that question? And what about your church? What about the community that you're a part of? Do people come and be with you and draw the conclusion these people may be crazy (laughs) they may have different ideas from my ideas but they really believe and they really really love 
Jesus. Why don't we stand?